0: Lewis, this is this from the work of his very really thin work, it's really fine. By the way, it's, it's I think it's one of his best um, apologetic works. It's called Abolition of Man. He's responding to two educators, and and they're laying out a curriculum on what teachers should be doing, and he's disagreeing with them at every point. Um, these men are making fun of emotions because the emotions seem silly and sentimental and disordered. And Lewis is saying to both these men, the answer to bad emotions isn't cutting out emotions, it's forming good emotions. And that raises the question, how do we do that? How do we do that? You know from our work together that that one of the things I've been pushing from the very beginning is the greatest task that I think we have as human beings, and I mean this universally, is ordering our emotions. We can be too indifferent, we can be cynical, we can be sentimental, Uh, we can love the wrong things, we can pity in a way that will be arresting. We have talked about that forever. That pity can be a paralyzing emotion, it can be an enabling emotion. Families get trapped in it all the time. We can have somebody on drugs and feel so sorry that they go on in that condition with nobody doing anything. You know, it's just, we, we, we live in an enabling culture that makes it possible for people to continue to do things when it's against their very good. So how do we form good emotions? Lewis says this against these two educators. Lewis's own experience, he says, tells an opposite tale. We don't want to get rid of emotions. The question is, how do we form better emotions? For every one people who needs to be guarded from weak, excessive sensibility, there are three who need to be awakened from the slumber of cold vulgarity. Lewis goes on, the task of the modern educator, he argues, is not to cut down jungles, but to irrigate deserts. The right defense against false sentiments isn't to cut emotions out, it's to inculcate just sentiments. How do we do that if we've never been raised to do that? Pope John Paul in, I think it was Fide Ratio, I can't remember, I think it was that. But he said again and again, feed my sheep. I'm taking it as self-evident that he didn't mean put food down for feed my sheep partly means help awaken their hearts give them what they need Um, give us this day our daily bread feed people give them what they most need to have better hearts to make it possible for them to love better than they do to follow Christ now here's the problem, because this goes to what we've been doing here in our work together. If we start in an angelic imagination, I tried to show this graphically on the board, you start with an angelic imagination, you never return to earth. If you're looking for metaphors to help you, you've got to use them but without ever opening up the meaning of those, the meaning of those common things in, in what you're doing. You still need people in an angelic imagination. Um, So one of the most important things for Lewis, because education was a really important concern for him, is um, how do we develop what he calls that aspect of our nature that makes us fully human? Because he said, in our heads, we're like angels. In our bellies, we're like beasts. It's the middle element, the heart, the seat of affections that makes us most human. We either too much in our heads, too much in our appetites. How do we develop those emotions that can help us become more fully human? Second page, what's this middle element, this indispensable liaison officer between the angelic and bestial in man? If the head rules the belly through the chest, the seat of magnanimity, of emotions organized by trained habit into stable sentiments, how can emotions be organized or made ordinate to help reason do its work, to give it more to work with? For Alan Tate, they are formed by a submission to a permanent limitation of man, one depending on a respect for nature. Formed sentiments are an acquired power, what is traditionally be called taste, that form the inner disposition of man that form the dispositions of man which not only prevents him from overstepping bounds from being bigot or loud or self-righteous from committing violations whatever they are but also allows him to be one with the exigencies the offerings of the moment are we, are we fully capable of being one in the moment the here and now whatever that means for us or do our minds take us out of the moment or our appetites Because with our appetites, we're like beasts. With our minds, we're like angels. What helps us to fully enter into a moment with each other as humans? And how does Christ do that? Tate says in the the angelic imagination, taste is the discipline of feeling according to the laws of... By the way, the whole classical order... I'm going to make a broad generalization again. The whole classical order, if you read everything in the classical world, Homer... Virgil, the classical poets, leaves us with a sense that there are these limitations to man. Everywhere in the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, when you watch people, where they overstep those limits to try to be something they're not, they always do bad things. Or they they remain isolated in their own private worlds. The Christian classical world defines itself in terms of our limitations. Every time we try to be something we're not, we make ourselves worse. The modern world keeps encouraging us to believe we can do anything we want, be anybody we want. How much do we deny our own nature in doing that? You can call the modern um, form of Christianity romantic Christianity, as opposed to classical Christianity. Classical Christianity is what produced St. Augustine, St. Thomas. Romantic Christianity is behind largely with the Reformation to constantly try to exceed our limits to be something that we're not. Think about the angelic imagination in in that context. Taste is the discipline of feeling according to the laws of order, a discipline of submission to a permanent limitation of man. This discipline has been abrogated by mathematical reasoning whose purpose is the control of nature. Here we have a Cartesian split. Taste, feeling, respect for the depth of nature resolved into a subjectivism which denies the sensible world. Remember. Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. He made ideas the object of the mind and cut himself off from the world of senses, the physical world. So one of the schisms of the modern world has its beginnings in Descartes. It puts a a mind-body at odds. The mind is going to control everything. Whatever the ideas are in my mind, they're the means of controlling nature. St. Thomas would say the body is absolutely essential to who we are, it's who we are. We receive things through our senses, take them in, and it gives our mind the food to work with. Um, the sensibility is frustrated since it's denied its perpetual refreshment in nature. To whatever degree we're estranged from nature, we lose a help ordering our faculties. What do we turn to? Faith, when the object of faith is supersensible, we can't confirm it? Hard to grow in it? Sensibility is frustrated since it's denied its perpetual refreshment in nature. The operative abstraction replaces the rich perspective of the concrete object. Reason is thus detached from feeling and likewise from the moral sense, the third and executive member of the psychological triad moving through the will. Remember, intellect, heart, appetites. Feeling in the scheme being isolated, or Mr. Scott, this is Buchanan, might put it occulted, hidden away. It's strictly speaking without contact, and man has lost his access to material forms. We get the hypertrophy of the intellect and the hypertrophy of the will. When neither intellect nor will is bound to the human scale, their projection becomes godlike, and man becomes an angel. In Meritain's sense of the, Jacques Maritain was one of the great philosophers of the twentieth century. So, um, what's our starting point? Do we start in ahead with our own ideas or our own subjective grasp of something as a matter of faith? Do we put something that's a matter of faith together with what our reason shows us? One of the great, I think, um, encyclicals of the 20th century is John Paul John Paul II's Fide Ratio, Faith and Reason. He, he says that's... One of the most essential things that we need to get control of in the modern world. Pope Benedict said the same thing, by the way, in his in his address at um, Regensburg. He was addressing the fundamentalists across the world. Fundamentalist Christian Christians, fundamentalist Islamic. Because for both of them, denying reason the way they do, they lost their way into the natural order. They could no longer experience the logos. Christ working in the world. Which is graspable by our hours of reason. We've been seeing that in all these poems that we've been reading. Does it matter what you start with as long as you keep them connected? I don't know. I mean, I just, it, um, it seems to me it's a really hard thing to do. I mean, maybe hypothetically you can. I don't, that's such a hypothetical that I don't honestly, I don't know how to answer it.
1: Isn't the starting point an between the two? And so to start with both working inordinately would kind of be Starting with the shoes, sometimes I mean you got you got to start with one or the other. If they're in conjunction, they're not harmonizing; they're in disharmony, And the goal is to create harmony and ordinance. Then you can't really start with both.
0: You got to start with one or the other. Right? Let, yeah, let, let me, Fred. I don't know if this is going to answer but Thomas Thomas would say the natural way to start would be through our senses because that's our first engage. We don't start with, in our heads when you're a child. You know, before reason comes. You're putting things together, you're taking things in through your senses. Um, the, the question for me is what happens in a schism where that, um, that that power for responding to something outside of you is broken. Because the natural way, that, the, Thomas would say, the natural way to know is to take things in through our senses and through our powers of mind, work with whatever given. If you start denying that world, if you go around it, and you're in your head, how how do you relate? So I'm I'm not sure that you can personally. I'm not sure that you can start with it. There may come a time in your life when you're mature enough, when when you're synthesizing ideas and putting things together. You know, it it makes you put together things in a way that might change the way you look at an ordinary thing that your senses give. But I think the natural way of knowing for all of us is starting here. The argument that these men are making, what I'm trying to present, I want to to get to the example in a second, is that the natural way to know for us as humans, incarnate creatures, is through our bodies. If we deny our bodies its place, it affects everything in us, our minds, what they're calling the seat of magnanimity, the the heart. I'm I'm
2: not saying deny, but for example, I don't
0: know that you could ever determine whether the Earth revolves around the Sun or the Sun revolves around the Earth without going to the imagination to figure that out. But if you stay on the right path, as long as you keep grounded to fact. Yeah. Okay. For example. Yeah, my question would be, you, I mean, you're you're the scientist here. I'm not. Could you? Could you eat? Could you? By the way, I agree with you. The, how, the, how crucial the imagination is could you ever get to that plane without taking in the singular things? Because all, Even all modern sciences start with empirical, the singular thing in front of you, whatever your senses present. So, it, for me it would be, a, I, it, theoretically it would be impossible to get to the imagination without having gone to the senses first because you'd have to recognize the, the path of the planets, what the sun and moon were doing, I mean, you have to put together all those singular facts before you could come up with a conclusion, or before you can even imagine what they would do with your imagination. All of us have to start with the singular singular concrete thing before us to arrive at whatever constructs we're going to be able to draw out of them. Here, let me... that, That must be obviously another longer conversation. Here... The point of this is to get to Dante, and what Tate is saying about Dante is this. That Dante is the consummate poet because he always started with the common thing and managed to move from that common thing to higher orders of reality. And he never lost the common thing. That was my example on the board a couple of weeks ago. This is Tate. To bring together various meanings at a single moment of action is to exercise what I shall speak of here as the symbolic imagination. But the line of action must be unmistakable. We must never be in doubt about what's happening. For at any given stage of this progress, the hero does not simply is not does not simply. The hero does one simple thing and one only. The symbolic imagination conducts an action through analogy. Of the human to the divine, of the natural to the supernatural, of the low to the high, time to eternity. Remember, St. Paul said, We only know invisible things through the things that are made. If we're going to get to the invisible, we have to start with what's ordinary to us. Um, Go on over, page four at the bottom. Tate is quoting Charles Williams, um, who was a a great English author, I think Anglican, too, if I remember correctly. Um, He was one of the circle of friends that made up that Inkling group in England with C.S. Lewis and Dorothy Sayers and others. Bottom of four, this is the simple secret of Dante, but it is a secret which is not necessarily available to the Christian poet today. The Catholic faith has not changed since Dante's time, but the Catholic sensibility, as we see it in modern Catholic poetry, from Thompson to Lowell, has become angelic. This is a critique, serious criticism of the modern Catholic and what's happening to his mind and heart, um, has become angelic and is not distinguishable doctrinal differences aside from the poetry by Anglicans, Methodists, Presbyterians, and atheists. I take it that more than doctrine, even if the doctrine be true, is necessary for a great poet of action. Catholic poets have lost, along with their heretical friends, the power to start with the common thing. They have lost the gift for concrete experience. The abstraction of the modern mind has obscured their way into the natural order. Nature offers to the symbolic poet clearly denotable objects in depth and in the round which yield the analogies to a higher synthesis. The modern poet rejects the higher synthesis or tosses it in a vacuum of abstraction. If he looks to nature, he speaks the clear visual image in a complex of metaphor from one catacresis to another through Aristotle's permutations of genus and species. He cannot sustain the prolonged analogy the second and superior kind of figure. This is Aristotle, because Aristotle said analogy, the use of it is a sign of real genius in people. He wants to make this clear, so he uses an example in the middle of the page. Um, Whatever else the symbolic imagination does by conducting an analogy, exactly as St. Thomas describes the act of judgment, it becomes one with the act it is a part of. That is, for St. Thomas, anytime we make it a judgment and say, this is, our mind becomes one with that thing. We are united to it. That can never happen in a Cartesian world, because for Descartes and all the idealist philosophers in the modern world following him, separates itself from nature. We live in a schism. If you've read St. Thomas, you know that once you know a thing, once you can say it is, you become one with that thing. It becomes one with your own mind in in the mind's act in itself. It knows that. It it takes that thing in. Here, if that sounds too abstract. You you know, yourself, all of you, that you have taken in things to your, into your hearts since you were a young kid reading. It can be Dr. Zeus or Walt Disney or you know, Freud, whoever it is. But all of us know, when we read we take whatever we've read into us and it becomes one with our own being. Its existence is one with our own. It becomes part of us. Um, that, that the gift of analogy was not Dante's alone every medievalist knows the most striking proof of its diffusion and the most useful example for my purposes that I know of is in the letter of St. Catherine to Raymond a young Sienese, Nicola Tuldo had been unjustly convicted of treason and condemned to death Catherine became his angel of mercy giving him daily solace the meaning of the cross the healing powers of the blood and so reconciled him to the faith that he accepted his last end. Now I have difficulty in believing people who say that they live in the blood of Christ, for I take them to mean that they have the faith and hope someday to live in it. The evidence of the blood is one's power to produce it, the power to show it as a common thing, and to make it real literally in action. For the report of the blood is very different from its reality. St. Catherine does not report it. She recreates it so that its analogical meaning is confirmed again in the blood that has been seen. This is how she does it. Let me put this more concrete. When we take the Eucharist, when we go to Mass, do we genuinely, are we genuinely with Christ in that act, or is it in our head? Is the blood really real? Do we partake of it? Do we find it easier to live with whatever violence he experienced in his life in that act? Do we bring out of it a love of our own that comes from him? This is his description of St. Catherine dealing with this man who was going to be executed when she tried to help him recover recover his faith when he was on the point of being killed and in danger of losing it. Then the condemned man came like a gentle lamb, and seeing me, he began to smile and wanted, to me, wanted me to make the sign of the cross. When he received the sign, I sat down to the bridle, my sweetest brother, for soon shalt thou be in the enduring life. He prostrated himself with great gentleness. I stretched out his neck and bowed me down and recalled to him the blood of the Lamb. His lips said not, save Jesus and Catherine. And so saying, I received his head in my hands, closing my eyes in the divine goodness and saying, I will. When he was at rest, my soul rested in peace and quiet and in so great a fragrance of blood that I could not bear to remove the blood which he had fallen on me from him. I mean, when, as we were watching the movie, I was thinking of this passage. Imagine Meg going to pick up the head of her father and taking it home. That, her father did not exist as an idea in her head. She wanted that head. Present. However, Present gro- How many people would turn away from that because it would be so grotesque? She took that head off its pike and took it home. It is deeply shocking, as all proximate incarnations of the word are shocking, whether in Christ and the saints, Dostoevsky, James Joyce, Henry James. I believe it was T.S. Eliot who made, the, who made accessible again to an ignorant generation a common Christian insight when he said, this is Eliot, that people cannot bear very much reality. I take this to mean that only extraordinary courage and perhaps even genius can face the spiritual truth in its physical body. Flaubert said that the artist, the soldier, and the priest, the artist, the soldier, and the priest face death every day. So do we all. Yet it is perhaps nearer to them, to other men, it is their particular responsibility. When Catherine Rest in so great a fragrance of blood, it is no doubt the blood of the offertory which the celebrant offers to God, commodore, soritatis with the odor of sweetness, but with the literal odor of the species of wine, not of blood. St. Catherine had the courage of genius which permitted her to smell the blood of Christ in Nicola Tudel's blood, clotted on her dress. She smelled the two bloods, not alternately, but at one instant in a single act compounded of spiritual insight and physical perception the question i want to pose is can we envision a unified action of the real through its faculties without noble or just emotions how do we produce these ordo what saint augustine called ordo amoris the emotions to live in the blood of christ middle of the Last paragraph, the injunction facing us in ways not true for St. John's taste and see. That's, our, that's, that's what we're asked in the Bible again and again, taste and see. Too many Catholics today are losing the gift for concrete experience, turning away from nature with their Protestant brothers, with too great a sense of nature's depravity, and so wanting to tidy it up geometrically. Without a servitude to the natural order, it becomes nearly impossible to start with the common thing. Each of us has a help in the common life we share with each other, whatever we do or task together. Um, we have to be careful of living too much on our head. Two warnings speak to us from entirely different directions. Affectivity will... This is C.S. Lewis, by the way, in, in Abolition of Man. Affectivity <coughs> will have its revenge. We castrate and build and bid the geldings multiply. If we, stuff our, if we stuff our emotions, this is what see, affectivity will have. If we stuff our emotions, if we deny our hearts, it's going to come out. Those emotions will have their revenge. We can't keep denying something that God made in us without having an effect. If we don't, if we don't open our hearts and learn to love as we should, those things will come back to haunt us. And he's saying we castrate, we do everything we can to get emotions out of, it, and then we bid the geldings molt- Multiply. We take away the very best things in kids, and then wonder why their emotions are so disordered. So the question I'm posing here is: how how can we recover the fullness of our humanity, our heart, without doing things that help cultivate those emotions? That this middle, you know, that make us human—not in our heads, not in our bellies—our <coughs> emotions, so that what we're living are rich, ordinate emotions. And the the argument that I'm making here, along with Tate and and, um, Williams and C.S. Lewis, is we can't do it without beginning with the common thing. That's where we start, and that's 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 where we're going to start with Dante. So let me turn there quickly um, because we've only got. I just want to start us. I want to point everybody to just a couple of things to get us going. And then um, next week I'm going to start. I'll do the historical overview next week because it's amazing to see how much of what we've been reading in the 16th century is already underway centuries before it up Dante's life, too. Turn to the first pages. Dante's not going to start with an order of angels. He's going to start in the order of nature with himself. The subject of this poem is Dante. Not another human being. He's taking himself as the subject. Now think about that. Those of you who have been doing this for a while now, you know that for Homer and Virgil, the epic hero is always this great heroic man who accomplished these great deeds. Achilles took on... (laughs) the the whole eastern world virtually, and defeated them. Achilles took on the, or Odysseus took on the suitors. Aeneas was constantly in battle, overcoming tremendous obstacles and fighting off um, hundreds of men. I mean, all those heroes had great tasks. All of them also had the help of the gods, but they were all the same in this one way. They performed extraordinary deeds They did things that other men couldn't do. So here in Dante, Dante's taking himself as a hero, and you're going to see this guy, who's now the hero of this book, constantly pass out, he will constantly faint, he will cry easily, he'll want to turn back, he'll want to give up. So what, and think about this, because we saw with Milton, Milton was taking Satan as the alleged hero, epic hero, but Satan functioned to call into question all the heroes of the ancient world. Dante's taking himself as the hero, and the great obstacle for him will not be overcoming men in battle, it'll be overcoming himself and learning. Learning. It's the, and it's interesting, it, it's a violent activity. He's going to have to deal with problems the entire way. What Dante's making clear is, education's not a nice thing. Dante's gonna have to look at a million violent, violent things before he can get to the end of this. In fact, he opens, take a look, first page. Midway along the journey of our life, I woke to find myself in a dark wood, for I had wandered off from the straight path. How hard it is to tell what it was like, this wood of wilderness, savage and stubborn. The thought of it brings back all my old fears. A bitter place, death could scarce be bitter, But I would like to show the good that came of it. I must talk about things other than the good. In order for him to make clear the good, he's going to have to deal with evil things. Because there's no way anybody can come to the good, i.e. with Christ, without dealing with evil. So um, this is, first of all, it's about Dante. It's about a very ordinary man like most of us. He's got weaknesses that will keep showing up again and again and again. Um, How I entered there, I cannot truly say. I had become so sleepy at the moment when I first strayed, leaving the path of truth. Now, this is an important moment because Dante's coming out of a wood, and what he's making clear at the beginning here is that there's going to be an allegorical element to the story. Because he's not, obviously, he's not talking about the literal woods, He's he's in the middle of his life, and he's coming out of this woods, which is an image of a lost condition in the world, where he's lost in this forest. He comes to the foot of this mountain. This is where it begins. And he sees the sun, and he wants to go up. So, allegorically, I think this moment means this is the moment when any human being becomes aware of some... Immortal quality to the human soul. He has this longing for immortality. He wants to be with God. So it's like the moment when the soul wakes up to its own nature. It's immortal. Whatever the wood offered, it couldn't answer this. He wants to go to this sun. So he says, I raised my head and saw a hilltop shawl in the morning rays of light sent from the planet that leads men straight ahead in every road. And not only did terror start subsiding in my heart My heart's lake, which rose to heights of fear, that night I spent in deepest desperation. Just as a swimmer, it's interesting, think about water. Um, Just as a swimmer still with panting breath, now safe upon the shore, out of the deep, might turn for one last look at the dangerous waters. So I, although my mind was turned to flee, turned around to gaze once more upon the past, that never let a living soul escape. So however much he wants to to cross this path, get to the mountain, nobody's ever done it before. So he starts to climb and he meets he's pushed back by three beasts, a leopard, a lion and a she-wolf, a leopard, a lion and a she-wolf. Um, spotted, violent, cunning, okay? Um, and they beat him back. i have going over. L- um, line 54. The last beast brought my spirit down so low with fear that seized me at the sight of her, I lost all hope of going up the hill. As a man who rejoicing in his gain, suddenly seeing his gain turn into loss, will grieve as he compares his then and now so she made me do that relentless beast coming towards me slowly, step by step. She forced me back to where the sun is mute. While I was rushing down to that low place, my eyes made out a fierce a figure coming towards me, one of one grown faint, perhaps from too much silence. Who is that figure? Virg. It's Virgil. And I want to stop for a second. Virgil's going to come and tell Dante that he was sent by Mary who saw the trouble he was in. She went to Beatrice because she knows Dante loved Beatrice. And they went, or wait, Lucia, Light, and Beatrice. And Beatrice went to get Virgil. So we're watching in this moment is a whole divine order put into operation for the sake of a man's soul. One person. The whole divine order, Mary, Lucia, Light, Beatrice, and she goes to get Virgil. What's going on here? It's really clear that what's working is the principle of love, that the divine order is working with what people love. Let it be a baseball player who loves baseball. Whatever, you know, painting, music, whatever. Dante loves poetry, and he loved Beatrice. Okay? So the whole divine order is working on what loves a human person has to help bring that person to an end he can't achieve on his own. That's the first thing to know. The second is, he can't do it by himself. What this opening makes clear is, Dadi wants to do this alone. He cannot do it himself. If this is about learning, and it's very much about learning, it's really about education, the, the, the natural our, the nature of our soul is to learn. Dante can't do it by himself. He has to have help. Why Virgil? Because he loves Virgil. That's I mean, that's the most obvious. But here's another question. I want to, I want to stop for a minute. I know you lots of you haven't read it, but Virgil comes to him because the divine order sent him. It's a task he has to perform. Dante's a Christian. Dante's a Christian. Virgil's pagan. He represents a lower order. It's a pagan who's going to help Dante reach this point, purgatory. Virgil says to Dante, you can't go up until you go down. There's no way for you to get here without learning to see your sins as they are. So Dante's going to encounter these three beasts. The leopard, the lion and the she-wolf cunning. It's going to be the three spheres of hell. So he's going to have to learn to see everything ugly about his own soul. Remember, the good... But if I would show the good that came of it, I must talk about things other than the good. He's got to talk about the evil that he had to face before he could become good. So what we're going to do is, um, with Virgil leading him, enter the depths of hell to see the nature of sin. That's what Dante's got to do. Now let me take a minute before I... I've got a couple of other things I want to just throw out at you before we stop it. Why Virgil? Dante's a Christian, Catholic, deeply committed to his faith. And we're going to find out, by the way, shortly. We're going to learn that Dante was in serious danger of being damned. Otherwise, Mary would not have, you know, he when the when the book starts, the story starts. Dante's on his way to being damned. We'll find that out later. So Dante's Christian; he's Catholic, and a and a pagan has come to help him. Why?
1: I would say, um, and think partly because Virgil represents some of the things that we can know in a natural order. And it, it's also an act of love because it's catered to Dante's soul and what he loves. And Virgil is, he's a part of the good of nature. Although he may not be Christian or, or represent a higher part in that slope, mm-hmm. he represents something real that is, is something that's tangible and still has purity that Dante can use to, to find that, to surmount that. Just like you were saying, we can use the national order yeah. to go. He represents something that is still fruitful? Yep. We're better to know hell than a pagan.
0: Say it <laughs> again, Mark.
2: <more. laughs> we're better to know hell than a pagan. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to take the tour, you want to try the tour
1: guide.
0: <laughs> 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 can you flesh that out at all?
1: <laughs> oh, pretty good. Yeah, because it's going to be. Well, um,
0: you have this pity way of saying things sometimes that I it contain far more than I think is on the I think that the the being
2: a Catholic at that time and the way the church viewed hell and damnation I think that it is only natural for the story to have a pagan do this even though you're going to find out there are a lot of Catholics in hell in the story mm-hmm. Um... I think it makes it more believable and more palatable, I think, for that time. I think there's a a little bit of a better reference, I think, that also because of his ties, and when you've gone on ad nauseum about this to the past, Yeah. and and, and his tie to the old poets, Mm -hmm. that it makes more sense because there's also any learned man who would be able to read at this time would know Virgil, Mm -hmm. would know where he's going with it, I mean, we, we struggle with it because we really don't know. I mean, back then, yeah. there's there right. was so much there. Right. And right. So they would have known already. Right. It would have been a, a, an easier way to do that. Yeah. It, it also, all pagans would be in hell or in church, so... They'd oh, know. He, he's gonna, he's gonna know. Yeah.
1: Although Virgil's oh, not in hell, is he? Yeah, he is, Doc. I thought he was one of the virtuous pagans that
0: was on the outskirts. Well, it's hell. No, he's in, in he the first circle. Yeah, it's the virtuous pagans. It's I mean, it's the condition of hell. We're going to get to that right now. And all the other philosophers. Right, right. Here, here's what I want to get to. The, here, I, this is so important. I, stop and think about that, particularly in light of what Mark just said. Dante could have chosen Aristotle, Plato. He could have chosen a number of philosophers, he could have chosen Homer. First of of the poets. And by the way, he's going to encounter all of those people in limbo. It's going to be the first circle. Well, he's he's showing us a limbo here, and we'll see why in a second. He could have chosen all of those people. In fact, he's going to call, Aristotle's going to be called the master there, I think. Why did he choose Virgil? Let me just offer a couple of suggestions here. Um, (laughs) As Mark said, Because if you've read, those of you who've read it will know, if you read the Iliad and the Odyssey, you know that Virgil took the Iliad and the Odyssey and incorporated them, assumed them into his vision. The first part of the Aeneid is um, modeled on the Odyssey, the, the wanderings. The last six books of the Aeneid are modeled on the Iliad. And if you read those scenes, you know, those of you who have done this, you know they match up, that, that Virgil is taking scenes from those earlier epics and transforming them. What's what's the principle of transformation? Achilles, He, he what he, the whole of the Aeneid in one sense shows its debt to the Greek world and Homer and a critique of it at the same time. Because his criticism of the Greek world is that it was, God, here's America, too individualistic. That Achilles did too much for his own good. That Odysseus did the same thing. How does Aeneas change that the heroic ideal? Because everything he does, he does in a spirit of pietas. It's the new Virgilian virtue for the common good. And if we were doing, I'm, I, I, I said to Suzanne last night, I'm so, I'm so sorry we're not doing the, the Odyssey, of the Aeneid leading into this, because because it would just oh, it would just deepen it more than I can say. So he, he's, he's taking the one poet who knew most about the human mind and the human heart. Because what distinguishes Aeneas from those other two heroes, the Greek heroes, is his love of others, pietas. His obedience to the gods. The, the whole Aeneid is about Aeneas following the gods to find out, to found this new city. And I remember when we did it last year, I said, not for faint hearts, Because the Aeneid is is just full of painful suffering again and again and again. And he has to bear it if he's to bring this new... Rome, the eternal city, into being. So, for Dante, Virgil was the one who most completely knew the depths of the human heart more than Homer, more than the philosophers because they'd be in their head. Virgil's knowledge was as experience. It's laid out as experience, not ideas. He would have known justice, because that's the great theme of the ancient pagan world, not love, justice. And knowing justice, he would have known intuitively that there was no way to deal with justice without answering it. To do that would have required mercy. Number one. Number two, because the whole tradition, it's, it's a way of valuing the entire tradition going back to the pagan world that there's no way for a Catholic to fully enter his faith if he didn't carry that entire tradition with him, because the fullness of life is there. So it's, it's not just, Vir- Virgil talked about allegorically as reason. I mean, he is that. He's, he is the sort of an image of the norm of rationality in us as humans. But he represents so much more. The tradition that has to be carried forward and redeemed has to be carried forward. Dante can't, can't know. He can't know what he has to know. He, he will never be able to know himself well without learning from the traditions that preceded him. Because in that tradition, he will find images of man, of himself. He'll learn to see himself more fully because he'll see other human beings. It's, I mean, why do, else do we go to literature? It's mirrors of it keeps showing us what we're capable of humans. So... Um Virgil embodies the past. He's an image of, of the past. He's important because he carries the past with him. He has the courage of his convictions. Dante in the opening chapters will want to turn around. He says, Saint Paul went to the heaven. I, I do not want I'm not fit I, I don't have the strength to do that. Virgil gets angry at him. Says, knock it off, stand up and keep <laughs> going. When when they get to the gates of Dece, I think it's in chapter ten or eleven. Um, Virgil will pick up Dante and physically turn him around. Physically, violently, turn him around. And say, do not look at that because he knows that if he looks at evil squarely what will happen? You will get turned to stone. And at the level of um, sloth and purgatory, Virgil will violently shake Dante and wake him up and says, wake up, wake up. We'll get to that at look at it. Virgil is the one who knows our human nature Short of what it takes to get to heaven. Because Dante knows that Virgil is the one who most completely knows our earthly existence. But he doesn't know the mysteries of paradise. That's a a grace given by God. And as a pagan, he didn't know it. So Dante is reaffirming the importance of tradition, of the natural world. How important it is that we learn from it in our struggles to bring faith and reason together. To, to become more fully who we are. Okay. One last thing before we, before we leave. Um, um, as Dante goes down the levels of hell, he's gonna he's gonna encounter people who are damned, um, who are situated where they are because of the kind of sin they committed, and they chose. And it becomes clear as we read God didn't put these people here. That is not what God does. These people chose, and that's where they are. That was their choice. Um, At each level, we're going to encounter what is called the contrapasso against the sin. Against the sin. It's absolutely important to be aware of this and watch for it and understand it. Because if you don't, if, you, if you're not aware of it, you're going to miss part of what's going on and what Dante's doing with each scene. So, for example, if take a look at, um, very quickly, I think it's chapter 5. This is. I'm going to come back to this when we start because I, next week when we meet, I want to go back to the beginning. Well, this, huh? Sorry? Oh, it's it's likely that we'll be in the library next week because there's a... a what's. It's the
1: priest dinner before oh. the communal reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And they have the dinner in here. Yeah. Okay.
0: Look on page 30. This is Canto 5. Dante comes yeah. to the level of the lustful. Okay? We're gonna go, I'm gonna go back to Limbo next week, but I wanna I wanna get you into the book and get going. This is the level of the lustful. It's the first sin properly. And notice that it's the one that most closely resembles love. We're gonna see this more clearly in the Purgatoria. Here he meets Francisca and Paola, who were lovers, who were in the act of reading the Arthurian romances, and they were so taken by the romance involving Lancelot and Guinevere, the adultery that took place, that they make love. While we're, they were in the act of making love, Francisca's husband comes along and kills them. So while they're in the commission of it, think about this, this is really important. It was an accident. In the commission of a sin, they're executed, and so they go to hell. Okay, that That's how t- threshold-like This experience is. Francesca says, page 30, um, Dante, it looks at her and he's overcome with pity. There's so much here. um, He's overcome because she is beautiful. She's educated. She's intelligent. She's sensitive. Page 30. O living creature, gracious and so kind, who makes your way here through this dingy air to visit us who stain the world with blood. If we could claim as friend the king of kings, we would beseech him that he grant you peace, you who show pity for our atrocious plight. Whatever pleases you to hear or speak, we will hear and we will speak about you as long as the wind here where we are is silent. And then she says, love quick to kindle in the gentle heart, seize this one for the beauty of my body, turn from me, how it happens still offends me. Love that excuses no one. Love from loving sees me so strangely with delight in him that as you see, he never leaves my side. Love led us straight to sudden death together. Cain awaits um, the, um, the one who quenched, that is her husband who killed them. Notice how her words twist back on themselves. Love who does this, who does this, who does... And I think it's supposed to emulate or imitate... The way the human mind begins to describe something in a way that shows the soul turning in on itself with the language that it uses. But here, when Dante comes into this realm, he describes it this way, line 81 or so. As doves called by desire to return to their sweet nest with wings raised high and poised, float downward through the air, guided by will, so these two left the flock where Dido is and came towards us through the malignant air. Such was their tender power to my... Make... That is, the lovers in the circle of lust are are buffeted about by winds. They're tossed about. So they're constantly buffeted about. They can't get their bearings. They're constantly buffeted about. That's the punishment. And So I want to come back to that. But look at Francisca's words. If we could claim... As friend, the King of Kings, we would beseech him that he grant you peace, you who show pity for our atrocious plight. Characterize Francisca here. This is, we with her, we're entering hell proper. Because in the earlier canto, we're in limbo. I'll, I'll go back to that next week. But I want to get us going. Characterize Francisca Here. If we could claim as friend the king of kings, we would beseech him that he grant you peace, you who show pity for our atrocious plight. Whatever pleases you to hear or speak, we will hear, we, you know, as, it, um, as long as the wind here where we are is silent. But the wind is not going to be silent. It's going to buffet them about. But characterize her here.
2: Manipulate. Hmm? How? It's almost like she's... It's there for her own gain, but she's... Trying to butter him up by saying such nice things to look good on their plight.
0: I mean, so if
2: we, even that that one that one stance that you just read, you know, we beseech him that he grant you peace. She'll pity it up for our atrocious plight. You know, she's she's acting like a victim. Yeah. 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 Okay. Better, explain it. Better, better, better put.
0: Better put. S- Explain it, Karen. Um, this is crucial. This is. quick you know, it's, it's not
1: my fault. This just happened to me because of whatever
0: yes. reason. Yes, yes. I'm maybe not blameless, but... Yeah. It, Who's it's at not fault? not my fault, I'm yeah. fault, Yeah. Who's at fault? If we could claim as friend the King of Kings, we would beseech him that he grant you. I mean, there is a touch of something manipulative, but I think, I mean, she is playing a victim. She's mm-hmm. she's appealing to his pity, and how... how how much control does Dante have over his pity here? None. Generally none. Zero. And he's going to faint. He's going to pass out here. He's going to be so taken by their suffering that he will he will faint. He's looking at a very beautiful woman, very beautiful, aristocratic, well educated. She she's capable with language. If you look at that, love quick to kindle and the gentle heart sees this one. Love that excuses no one from love, from loving. I mean, it's just turning in on itself, the language. Who's she blaming? If we could claim as friend the king of kings, we would beseech him that he grant you?
1: Well, she thinks that someone who's not offended,
0: so Who is she talking about? Uh, it's God. Yeah. yeah, if God were more friendly to her, they wouldn't be there. Oh, wow. So here, here in the opening canto we see how subtle the mind is at making an excuse for itself and blaming somebody else. And in this case, God. What's the contrapasso? What's the punishment? What's the atmosphere in which these lovers are being tormented? The wind. How is that a... cut? The contrapasso at every level um, is the effect... Of the sin. You know a cause. by looking. Dante could have been a great doctor. I mean this absolutely. As you go through this, pay attention to the cont- contrapasses. Because what he's going to be showing you is the effect of every sin. And if you look at the effect of it, you see its cause. What these lovers are suffering from is the sin itself. The passions, the buffeting, the torment. Because they couldn't control them in life. What have they got? They can't communicate anymore. And that, the atmosphere is the sin. So what we're seeing is there's no God punishing people. These people are getting what they wanted. At every level, we're going to see that. Dante's like a doctor. He's looking at the effects, presenting them, and we can see in the effects a visual image of that actual sin. Because can we see the sin itself? It's invisible. It's inside. What we're watching out externally is an image of internally what's going on in them. So Dante's making us aware of the nature of the cause of this condition. And not only in the in the contrapasso, the atmosphere, the the whatever they're suffering from, but in what they're actually doing. What are they doing here? Feeling sorry for themselves, playing a victim, blaming God, subtly using language to manipulate to get Dante to feel sorry for her. So what we're so what we're watching here is at the very outset. We're, I didn't read the passage, but I will next week. When when Dante and Virgil come to the gates of Hell, it says, "Enter here, all those who lost hope." This is the place where people have lost the good of the intellect. So that every at every level, we're going to see people using their minds. When they and what did Satan do? I mean, we saw that Satan himself couldn't even see that he didn't understand things. So that at every level, we're going to see this perversion of the mind, what the intellect does to excuse sin. Because people want that. They've chosen to be there. Nobody put them there. That's what they wanted. That's what they have. So pay attention to the counterpasses They're really important, okay? Um, one last just hint. As you go down, pay attention also to the guardians of each level because even the guardians themselves say something about the nature of that level the nature of that sin so what you're beginning right now is this very very rich complex revelation of hell the nature of the human soul and for dante it's what we have to look at if we hope for any good for ourselves we can't we can't go up so we've learned to go down. Okay. Enjoy. We'll we'll, we'll start the first eight cantos next. Did you have something? Did you have something? No, I, I, I just, a, just a question. Real quick. Is not there something significant to Dante's response in each one of those? L- levels. Yeah, absolutely. Dark. Absolutely. Because they they change yep. as you go along. Yep, so yep, you're just Absolutely just to Yep. yep. For yeah. For another time. Yeah. Yep. Hey, <laughs>